Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome to the newest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk. Today, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin price movements, Binance, Tether, volatility in the markets, and much, much more. Our guest today is Carol Alexander, Professor of Finance at Sussex University Business School. Carol, welcome and thank you for taking your time today. Thank you for inviting me. And of course, as always, with me is my charming co-host, Carmichael. Carmichael, uh, great having you. Uh, thanks for this very nice introduction. Pleasure to be with you and Carol here. No, great. I think it's always amazing uh, what caliber of guests we can have on this uh, podcast. And of course, a pleasure to host it uh, with such amazing colleagues and guests. So as I already alluded to, um, Carol is professor of finance at Sussex University. She's a visiting professor at uh, Peking University HSBC Business School and co-editor of the Journal of Banking and Finance. Her current research focuses on practical and regulatory issues with cryptocurrency derivative markets such as information flows to and from unregulated exchanges, the novel market mechanisms, such as orderly leveraging, and the design of tradable indexes. Recently, she designed and implemented the first live stream Bitcoin implied volatility index for crypto compare. So Carol, due to your track record in the finance industry and your focus on academics, it's not much of a surprise that you got into Bitcoin and crypto. It seems like a logical step. However, for many people, there's one special moment or occasion or event that they really got in touch with crypto that pulled them in. Was there a moment for you uh, that could have been the trigger or was it like many small moments? So how did you get into the space? Well, you're right that in my career, I've sort of gone from one thing to another, somehow transmogrified into a risk analyst, financial risk analyst from algebraic number theory via game theory and econometrics. So I had quite a, a need to, to change topics quite regularly. And I've been rather disillusioned with financial risk management for a while, um, looking for something different. And then A friend of mine who's a philosopher at the University of Sussex, a chap called Ron Crisley, gave a, a talk at a dining club that I go to um, back in 2014 about Bitcoin, um, which piqued my interest. And then it was, wasn't until a few years later when there was a sort of perfect storm of things. I just had a three-year hiatus in research because of being building up the business called Sussex. And I found myself with a lot of time on my hands and looking for something new. So it was around 2017, I logged into YouTube and just listened to video after video of some young person with on the spectrum talking at 50 miles an hour in a language I didn't understand. And it was really simply like jumping down the rabbit hole. Um, and so much of the information at that time was not accurate. Anyway, so this is the moment that, that I really started, 2017, and then the university wanted me to to start degrees and, and run courses in, in blockchain and crypto assets. So, yeah, that's when it started. So just as a quick question, the young man on YouTube, was it perhaps Vitalik or are you talking about someone else? <laughs> Vitalik mainly. Um, I remember a <laughs> seven-hour video that he made, which I, I listened to all of it. <laughs> I'm quite a fan of Vitalik, I have to say. He's quite captivating, I have to agree. So, Carol, that, that's very interesting how you got into the crypto space. And uh, is it the case that 
your academic research focus currently is strongly on crypto or is it kind of balance? Do you work on other things as well? It's, it's very much more on crypto, although I do work on shipping or new simulation methods. And I, I, I like to do research that is connected with what matters in the industry. And I think regulators have a very, very steep learning curve. I get concerned that as months go by, the learning curve just gets steeper and steeper. And it's really important for regulators to have proper research to back up any, any legal case they take has to have very thorough research backing it up. Now we have a joke, I feel like, in the industry of saying that uh, regulators are making decisions uh, so slowly that new protocols start popping up and dying before they get proper regulation. So I see where you're coming from. Now, you put a lot of work into researching Bitcoin volatility and eventually you developed the Bevin Bitcoin Volatility Index together with CryptoCompare. Um, what was your motivation there? What's the difference to other volatility indexes? Well, it was an obvious thing to do just to find the, the fair value of a Bitcoin variant swap once the options liquidity w was sufficient. But that didn't really happen um, until the beginning of 2020. And I'd had a longstanding partnership with um, Crypto Compare. At the beginning, in 2017, I walked into their offices and got to know them when they were just starting up because they are in, in London. And so that was why I collaborated with Crypto Compare for this. And, and the difference is not much, really. I mean, it is the, the VIX methodology. The paper I wrote with Arvind Imarai, the PhD student who, 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 in fact, he did the work when he was a master's student in the Technical University of Munich and then became my PhD. We call it the BVIX, but we can't use the name for the actual product that's being live streamed. And the methodology is the same, but the behavior is a little bit different. It's it's much higher. You know, the average range, range is about 80% to 150%. It moves much faster. The whole market is, you know, what seven days in crypto is a month in normal market. But actually, more recently, the variance risk premium is getting much more like an equity variance risk premium. So, yeah. So, I mean, from your background, even from your professional background, you did a lot of risk management. So that, that mean one of your first uh, topics, academic topics was volatility. I think it's not too surprising. Now, let's look at it from, from Bitcoin investor and trader. And uh, let's see the volatility play from this point of view. What do you think or what can you recommend to these people? What the best way to hedge against Bitcoin price And volatility, in your opinion? Well, for professional traders, you know, high-frequency traders and other market makers, um, the perpetuals are the obvious product because they're very closely tied to the spot. And there's very strong evidence that um, professional traders in the U.S., are using particularly the Binance Perpetual. They're even what we call bed and breakfasting the funding rate because we see um, volume and volatility spikes around the, every eight hours. There's a funding rate payment and then the volume changes on Coinbase <laughs> and Kraken and Bitstamp and so forth. So those are the obvious hedges. The, the correlation is very, very close to, to one. Miners, of course, and there's 18 and a half million Bitcoin out there, a lot of them still with, with miners who are now setting up their own um, special purpose acquisition companies and have a lot of Bitcoin to hedge. 
they could use longer term futures, possibly even the CME futures, which, you know, they don't trade 24 seven. So there's a real problem there. But you know, if it's a longer term future, and the margin requirements are so much higher on CME as well with the others, you can, well, until recently, it was most exchanges would give you 100 times leverage, uh, if you wanted, unless the position was very large. And then fund managers, of course, might want to add a long realised variance as a diversifier, just as in equities. If you add some volatility product to an equity portfolio, when the equity goes down, the volatility product gains. So it's a great diversifier. And um, GSR and other firms on chain, though, it's this sort of equivalent to over the counter. But uh, uh, quite a few companies are offering variant swaps on Bitcoin and, and other major coins. So it's quite possible to use a variant swap on uh, on crypto assets as a diversifier to an equity portfolio. In fact, it works even better because there's what I call the reverse leverage effect in that with equities, you know, it's almost always the case that if the equity price falls, the volatility goes up. But with Bitcoin, if the price is in a bubble and it's getting very, very high and there's a lot of nervousness about further price hikes, we get the opposite effect. It's a price rise that causes more volatility. So in a bubble, you're sort of leveraging the the price um, rises during the bubble with a variant swap. And then when it bursts, of course, the variance is going to shoot right up. And then I have a friend who's been a successful trader on uh, crypto, has a lot of money, doesn't want to take the capital gains this year because long-term capital gains tax is, is much lower than it is in the short term. And so he's bought an option. You get the double leverage there. Of course, you've just got the option premium to pay and uh, you can get a long-term option with Deribit a year or more with, with also quite a lot of leverage, of course, if you want. So that's another way to, to hedge against Bitcoin price movements. Yeah, okay, clear. Maybe going back a little bit to your latest academic research. And you have a very interesting website, which we can only recommend to, to our listeners, which is www.coalexander.com. And yeah, you, you have a blog on this website. And one of the latest blog posts was on, I think, Binance. And it says almost all Bitcoin price transmission comes from Binance. And I think there uh, you compared Binance with Coinbase, Kraken and Bitstem and found out that around 70% of price movements was initiated on Binance. At least it was in June uh, this year. What does this mean practically? Or we may ask a little bit more provocatively, are there other implications than that Binance is dominating the market? which a pure volume analysis uh, on coin market cap would also reveal? Yeah, I mean, there's volume of informed and uninformed traders. So, for example, on Bybit, which has quite a lot of volume, it has more of a retail base and we don't find the same transmission effects from Bybit. In fact, there's a an, another blog associated with a paper that should be loaded to the internet this week with Daniel Heck and Bears Cake called The Role of Binance in Bitcoin Volatility Transmission, which also looks at volume transition. And there, it's in the one of my blogs as well, there's a very nice circular diagram that shows so much volatility is coming out of the Binance Tether Perpetual 
and the inverse perpetual and the spot market into Coinbase and Bitstamp and Kraken and even Huobi. So it's very clear that volatility is being transmitted out of Binance, particularly that Bitcoin Tether perpetual. That's the main product that one has to be careful about. And the the, the problem with, with Binance really is its business model, you know, with the Binance angels, sort of unpaid translators of documents that help people in Thailand on board fiat currency. And this happens not just in Thailand, but in more or less every country of the world, in Italy, um, in Malaysia and, and so forth. So they really are encouraging retail investors. And, and the reason for that is that they get a lot of volume from the what they call the VIPs, if you if you look at their their leaderboards, um, which have changed recently, but they used to get a lot of information about the amount of volume the professional traders were getting from Binance. There's they managed to avoid what we call toxic, where professional traders they they, they prefer to trade against uninformed traders rather than other informed traders. So we do get a lot of professional traders on Binance. And we also know that they're located in mainly in the US. The only way we know that is by looking at the time of day volume patterns, which jump up as soon as the US markets open. It's the same diagram in that paper that I'm referring to about the spikes during the funding rates. So we can see that there's a lot of smart US hedge funds and HFTs that are trading on Binance. And these um, are where the transmission's coming from. So it's not just volume, because Bybit's got a lot of volume, but it doesn't have the price impact and it doesn't have the volatility impact. But the real, the real problem there, I think, is that Binance is effectively operating as its own CCP. And it does custody, it's broker, as a trading platform. And then, you know, something like May 19th happens and everything's got destabilized since then. So we're going through quite a... a a delicate period right now when there's a lot of discovery going on about what actually happened on May 19th. Do you think that has implications on these uh, diverse regulatory moves, I would say, called against Binance, so crackdown in UK, in Germany, seizing support for stock tokens, the winding down of future derivatives in Germany, Italy, Netherlands, closing down in Malaysia, ETC? Do you think this stems from this particular event or is more a general trend? I think that was the catalyst. Obviously, the fact that the Binance volume has grown so much. I mean, they really had very little volume until November last year. You know, we had the, the US banks being allowed to be custodians of crypto in is it the 20th of June or July. I can't remember when it was. It was last summer, very soon after these smart traders from the US were trading in, you know, offshore XBTO and various other traders. They that they they just trade in the Panama or um, somewhere offshore in Binance, Deribit and all the derivatives exchanges. And then I think that that flow created the first price jump up from 10 to 30 in November. But then this This bubble that we saw up to um, above 60,000 is, is very much in line with what's the, you know, the Tether grants, the, the new minting of, of Tether has quadrupled since November. And at the same time, almost everything is, is going on to Binance. And that's very, very concerning. You've had a 
with six to eight months, something going from virtually nothing to 100 billion a day, which is what it was, the Binance volume in, in May. And then, of course, there are class actions trying to get their act together if they can locate where Binance is actually registered. So, yes, I think that was the catalyst combined with this incredible growth and concerns about Tether as well. Now, let's dive straight into that um, because, I mean, Tether has been quite the worry for many in the crypto industry for years already. I mean, now, most recently, the, let's say, gossip has been that pretty much all the commercial papers backing Tether have been issued by Evergrande, the Chinese conglomerate real estate developer that's uh, kind of in dire straits right now. What's your view on this? I didn't know that news about Evergrande, but I had my own my own suspicions, which this actually confirms. So I'll have to Google that after this. I mean, they are the largest issue of I think um, US dollar denominated uh, commercial papers, so uh, they kind of they're a way of getting around a lot of regulation. Yeah, especially within the US. So that's why, of course, I, this is just a rumor, that, but I've heard it from multiple sides. So it's yes, yeah, so it's just anecdotal evidence, isn't it? Well. I mean, first of all, when you think about this, it's 50%, it's 31 billion USD, okay, which is only about 3% of, if, if, if it were US-based, it would be a small fraction of commercial paper market in, in the US. And I mean, people have talked about the systemic risk if uh, they defaulted, but the, the Federal Reserve is, is used to operating in the money market there. So I don't see too much of an issue. But yeah, there's anecdotal evidence that the traditional money market mutual funds know nothing about this commercial paper operation so that also ties in with what you said about Evergrande but I was thinking well could the issuer be Binance huh (laughs) you know maybe there's some sort of deal between Deltec Bank and the Tether Binance, Bitfinex sorry company you know the Tether and Bitfinex basically the same thing and Binance in that you know, with, with Binance, I mean, a lot of Tether ends up on Binance. The cold wallets has got about 20 to 25% of all coins. And that's only what you see in the Tether rich list. And we know from Paolo Arduino, the CTO of Bitfinex and, Bitfinex and Tether, that, you know, there was an order by Binance for 3 billion Tether shortly after May 19th, he tweeted about this when he was alerting to a chain swap, because the thing is that they have a, a Tron wallet. And I think that it went from it went on Ethereum, from from the Tether Mint to Bitfinex, everything goes straight to Bitfinex. And then the flows come out of Bitfinex to wherever. And then it get, the chain swap happens in, in Bitfinex. So that's, you know, just a, an ordinary three billion. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about the it was when the uh, market cap of Tether was $3 billion back in 2019 that we were making quite a lot of noise about it. And then the, the market cap of Tether goes up from 10 to $62 billion and not much is happening. The New York State Attorney, obviously, is not the right regulatory authority to go, to go after it. And the, the problem is that, you know, if Binance is issuing a lot of paper, assuming that it's going to be in a position to pay the interest and the principal back by whatever it is, you know, 10, 12 months or so, then something like the 19th of May could really upset the relationship 
between Tether and Binance. And, you know, no new coins have been minted on on Tether since the 1st of June. And also the price, not just of Tether, but all the stable coins has become incredibly volatile. If you just look at coin market cap and look at the price of Tether, but also the, the price of USD coin, they've become very, very destabilized since the 19th of May. So anyway, yeah, I'm really right. Very concerned about the effect that Binance is having and whatever they agreed with Tether. Eventually, I think we'll find out. It almost seems like a certainty. Now, you kind of already touched on my next question um, of, is there any stablecoin that you think is kind of best in class or which one would you trust the most? Is it Circles, USDC, or is it something algorithmic like DAI, where, of course, we see sometimes quite large disconnects from the value of one US dollar, but then at least, uh, again, the total default risk seems lower. What's your view on this? Well, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick USD coin because obviously Circle is more regulated and it seems to be properly audited by Grant Thornton every month. And so, yeah. And just as Tether market cap has been level, or in fact going down slightly, the Dcoin market cap jumped by about a quarter um, after the 19th of May, and now it's just going up all the time. So I, I think that probably will be the one that uh, replaces Tether. Okay, let's move from Binance and Tether to the yeah, DeFi world, kind of uh, opening up a new chapter here of our talk. Within DeFi, we've seen a massive blast of innovation um, yeah. coming to crypto. Perpetual swap staking, automated market making, and you can combine all these things in a kind of money lego fashion so that that's that's really enormous i mean you are kind of veteran in the in the financial world you must be kind of overwhelmed to see such kind of of revolution happening how do you see DeFi evolving wow it's a huge question that and i'll try to be concise um well you're quite right this has been an explosion at the beginning of this year there was the total value locked in DeFi was 21 billion and now it's 121 billion and, you know, the main players like Aave or Uniswap or Pankiswap and so forth, it's fairly evenly balanced across those DEXs. And so, I mean, I've been more, more concerned about the buy side, actually, and evolution of, I don't quite know what you call them, and they venture capital intermediaries or whatever, the idea of a pre-IDO. So, you know, early investors before the, it's no longer called an initial coin offering or initial exchange offering, it's called an initial DEX offering. So there's outfits like Black Dragon, right? blackdragon.io. And to get a seat on Black Dragon, the full seat will cost you now 100,000 just for the seat. It was up to 400,000 actually a few months ago, but the coin value has gone right down as more competitors have moved into the Black Dragon space. But what are these companies do they're a little bit like warren buffett you know that they they actually research all the new tokens that are coming up in whatever it is nft or could it be green energy or you know any any sort of crowdfunding venture that wants to to use the DeFi financing you just need a, a white paper you need a website you need but you know a lot of these five, ten years ago, well, five years ago, were just spoofs. And, you know, or you get a lot of pump and dump going on on, the, on what we call the, the token generating event, the, the day the token actually goes 
live on Uniswap or wherever it goes. There can be a lot of sell-offs because these early investors negotiate via Black Dragon to have deals where their uh, initial funding, they can sell 15% of their stake on the total generating event or 50% of their stake on the token generating event and so forth, or they can hold on to it. So this is a very interesting new space, I think. I don't know what you call them, though, venture capital intermediaries. And then the other thing that I'm very interested in, and, you know, because I teach um, modules or courses, what do we call them? We call them modules at Sussex, um, in blockchains and, and crypto assets. Last year's <laughs> lectures are completely out of date. I've just loaded them onto my YouTube channel so anybody can watch them, including the students as their sort of summer reading. It's better than, than a book, I guess. But I'm going to have to completely redo all my lectures because... You know, what's happening on the chains with uh, the London upgrade with Ethereum, you know, that's this time last year, we wouldn't have even considered that it would move so quickly and that gas prices would have had such a problem. And so anyway, now I think the Ethereum chain will be taking much, much more after the London upgrade. Polkadot, I'm not quite sure what's been happening after their 1.2 billion ICO, but the relay and parachains idea for the interoperability, I think, is is really good on on Polkadot. I mean, you get other platforms like Bullish, of course, which are, are trying to provide this interoperability between different DEXs. But from the software point of view, I would have thought something like Polkadot would be something that that would, you know, Gavin Wraith is certainly an innovator in this space and one to watch. Not so sure about the tangle. I found that absolutely enchant enchanting the the way that the the tangle operates. Not exactly like a a blockchain, but again, Polkadot and IOTA seem to be and EOS. You know, I mean, they had so much in their in their initial coin offerings, and I'm not quite sure how they are evolving. I mean, perhaps that was rather a long answer. Oh, I think it was very in-depth and touched on the most important points. So, yeah, I mean, I think EOS had 4 billion back then. I remember yeah. they were touted as the Ethereum killer, but they were just way too late. And I mean, you can speculate on what the reasons were, but it seems like they pretty much have no ecosystem. Mm. And But they still have a lot of money. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting case. And then, as you mentioned, Black Dragon, I try to get into pretty much any coin list offering if you know the platform this year and i remember once i was in waiting lists spot number fifty-two thousand or something for an offering so it was insane um, and of course anything that launched on coin list and um, was extremely oversubscribed and there were things that were so far away from launch that still got two-digit millions yes it's it's a really a new paradigm. It's very different than it shows how much for, for places like Black Dragon, isn't it? I mean, obviously, there'll be more if that's the uh, the demand and fifty two thousand. <laughs> yeah, fifty two thousand people in front of you that all want to give their money to uh, well, a bunch of people on the internet that don't really have a product yet, but. Uh, <laughs> Promising you a product in the future at some point. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the London uh, upgrade, of course, which I also, as someone who got into crypto really with Ethereum back in 2014, I'm also very much looking forward to. And as you mentioned, I also, end of last year, if someone asked me when is proof of stake coming, I would have said next year, just like every year, it's always next year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now it is finally coming and we do have a real world super use case, I would say, that's back when ICOs were all the hype everyone was saying we had, but we didn't actually have. It was uh, very, didn't have uh, 
a solid basis. But with DeFi, it seems like we actually have something that's at least 10 times better than the established system and cheaper and faster. So do you believe that DeFi has what it takes to really become the new, like, let's at least say, interbanking settlement layer, the kind of the layer between the back end, or let's say the full back end, where the customer just needs to be onboarded onto, and then banking and financial services and financial markets can really be um, sitting on DeFi? Or is it just too hard to replace what we have, the incumbent system? Do you think there will be like two, yeah, two different systems that kind of run in parallel? Or do you think DeFi will kind of slowly die out? What's your view on this? Well, you know, I think it's a generational thing. One of the things that really attracted me to the, the crypto multiverse <laughs> is I, I've always been rather anti-establishment. And, you know, I went into risk management in 1987 when I saw the, the Black Monday crash and I saw the effect it had on the global economy and I really wanted to do something via risk management to stabilize people's, you know, and to, to, to try to, to do something about income inequality, particularly the divide between the old and the young. And it's just got worse and worse. So we have all these fat pensioners going on cruises around the world, sitting on pension pots, and 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 the young are in a gig economy where they they can't buy a house. They you know, and this is just wrong. But the establishment, you know, particularly the city of London, and what that's been doing since the, the uh, American War of Independence, they're not going to give up easily. And on top of that. Regulators, of course, really do want to do something to build some sort of bridge, but they don't have anything like the manpower that is necessary to, and as I said, the learning curve is just getting steeper all the time. So it's going to take quite a while before regulators actually catch up to a, a point where we don't get companies like Binance and Tether, which are, are like the, the cancer and the heart disease of crypto. And until that time comes, I don't think that the established sort of traditional financial intermediaries and banks are going to be building direct bridges into the DeFi space. No, I think it's going to take quite a long time. But it will happen eventually because people who are in their 30s or even 40s now will soon be the ones in power. So in one or two decades It'll happen, I think. Since we are approaching the end of the of the interview, not our last question, the last question, the golden question, but let's close the circle a little bit and get back to your research. Currently, we think, at least from what we read, most of your research is focused on, on Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency space. And Tether, you also mentioned this. Do you plan or have you already done maybe a not published paper, extended your analysis to Ethereum and not only Ethereum, but to the wider Ethereum ecosystem in terms of your, let's say, quantitative research? 
Actually, I do have one paper on, on Ethereum, but really the thing is that, you know, on the derivatives side, it's very much a question of, of building models and, and testing them out using the most liquid crypto that we have if they're, if they're not multi-asset. So, yeah, it's just a, a standard, you know, for example, the volatility transmission, which is the multiplicative error model application. We could do it on Ether as well, but it's, yeah. I do have one, one or two unpublished papers on a sort of risk metric for larger coins and also on determinants of DeFi success, which changes all the time, unfortunately. It's called the changing face of initial coin offerings. <laughs> um, so that'll come out at some point. And I'm doing some work on indexing tradable market-wide indices that aren't dominated by these. It's not so much academic research as, as, as industrial. And then I want to do things like, you know, using Bitcoin as numeraire for factor model, looking at the pricing factors. But as always there's not enough time or co-authors to do everything i want oh, that seems to be a common issue i mean crypto projects looking for solidity developers paying more than a hundred thousand us dollars per month uh, yeah to, yeah of course they're not being enough papers i remember alexander bechtel the head of currency strategy of deutsche bank we had him on the podcast just recently they just published a paper on offline crypto um, transactions that could form the backbone of a central bank digital currency. But yeah, he said the same thing. It's it's just a massive lack of qualified people in the space to do everything that needs to be done. Yes. It's interesting though, but it is a bit exhausting. <laughs> Absolutely. Now to yeah, to form the end of our talk today, we always like to ask a golden question, a question where our guests can well yeah answer a bit answer a bit longer and yeah, go a bit further into the future and elaborate how they see the entire space develop. So for today's uh, golden question, we'd like to ask you, do you see players like USDC, USDT and other stable coins actually stay relevant in the long run? Or do you see a monopolist player emerge, something like either a central bank like the Fed or the ECB? or well, a new monopolist player that becomes the de facto central bank of crypto? Yes, it's not called Libra anymore. The the the, the Facebook coin. They've they've changed the name again. Can you remember? Uh, yeah, they. It's DM. DM. That's DM. It. DM. Yeah, yeah, yes. They've had a bad time with regulators, haven't they? Right. I don't think necessarily stable coins that are simply tied to the dollar will have very much of a role to play once there is a digital dollar. Dollar, and there is a, a CBDC for the dollar, which will come. I mean. When you look back two years ago, they were all very reticent. You know, it was only the Bahamas and the sand dollar and things like that that were, or, and China have always been making noises about that for obvious reasons, because of course the, the distributed ledger allows more transparency and they can look into money laundering like that. So, yeah, I do think once CBDCs are, are here, standard stable coins rather than stable coins that might be actually um, tied to gold well there is already one or or baskets will be will be a thing of the past but i've actually always thought that you know we're beginning to see companies like amazon and facebook you know really big companies that threaten government and they have their own coin and almost like the the company becomes the government if you see what i mean in the future or even imagine i live in brighton okay Suppose there's something, that's a thing called Brighton coin. And in order to come to Brighton, you have to get Brighton coin. 
and pay for um, restaurants or um, the fun fair in Brighton coin. And of course, the, the 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 quality of what you get in those restaurants will depend on you know the, will, will determine the the exchange rate for, for Brighton coin. I mean, it's a little bit like just having an equity. So if Apple had a a digital asset instead of just an equity, then the value of, of of Apple would go up and down according to their coin. Yeah, well, this is really the crypto multiverse. This is me going off into into Avatar land and looking at another mushroom. <laughs> But it really does inspire, doesn't it? Yeah. To be able to think so freely of the possibilities with just a relatively simple underlying technology, just what it opens. It's very much power to the people or power to Brighton and Hove. We'll end up having <laughs> our own passport soon. <laughs> or to, tra or, you know, if you want to be an Amazon customer, you can't be, uh, is there a competitor to Amazon? No, I don't think there is. Hmm. I mean, they did have the Amazon coin for a long time already, right? The kind of gift card program where you get, yeah. I don't know, 5% off or something if you pay an Amazon coin. Yeah, yeah. And Dubai has uh, is this planning or is going to launch such a Dubai coin, so it's not so far fetched what what right. you're imagining here. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and Facebook obviously are the, the pioneers here because once they get their own coin, then they will be able to to compete in terms of marketplace against Amazon. But at the moment, you know, we have these um, monopolies of social media and monopolies of, of commercial things or, you know, the, these massive too big to fail organizations like Tesla, Amazon, and, you know, the FamGirl, we call them, Google as well. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I sort of see a future where, where countries are less powerful, even though they might have their own digital currencies and the world is dominated by these corporations. I mean, very much possible. It would be too surprising. Uh, see where it goes. <laughs> It's a long way off, though. Yeah. Well, as we all turn into um, cyborgs, as the you know the auto, uh, the virtual reality headsets, and you know, young people they haven't got a job anyway, so they just sit in their room and put on their virtual reality personality and uh, live in that world. And this is what Facebook are doing. They'll need Facebook Coin in order to play that, or or. It's not, not play anymore, is it? It's become that. I mean, I'm not even that. I, I feel like especially European Commission are massively overestimating the reach of Facebook because I feel like, like I don't know anyone. I, I'm 26 and I don't think anyone my age or younger is even using Facebook anymore. Yeah. So I feel like it's reached very much like my parents' generation and so on. And But you yeah, use Instagram, yes? Yeah, only for business purposes, honestly. it's. I feel like young people are using TikTok, and I already sound old by saying young people are using this and that, because honestly, yeah, I also just know it from like marketing metrics where people are using TikTok, a bit of Snapchat. and. But imagine yeah, that TikTok things. has a different um, virtual reality to Instagram, to Facebook and that. And when you put on your, your headset, which you probably don't need to do, in a, you can just put whatever, you have it embedded in you, if you like, in 10 years, you, you become a Facebook cyborg or a, an Amazon cyborg or a Tesla cyborg or, you know what I mean? And then we have a population of cyborgs. I mean, I feel like it's 
like on the again on the crypto side, what we already have like TikTok is obviously Chinese. It's called Douyin in China, and in China, CBDC is closer to becoming mainstream than anywhere else in the world. But then again, basically, no one uses cash in China, right? Mm. You go into a noodle soup place and you pay with your app. Um, you pay with your Alipay, with your Fubao. Or you pay with um, well, Tencent Pay, so everything is kind of in their database already. It's it's a very small step from AliPay to using well, Chinese central bank digital currency. Yeah. So it kind of already has happened. Just in yeah, here in good old Europe, we are still very much in love with cash, and I think for many good reasons. As someone who's sitting in Austria and is very close to all the Austrian economists as well. But then again, from many parts of the world, it's the concerns aren't so strong about giving more control to the government, if you like. Carol, thank you so much. Also, thank you so much for really getting in-depth on the golden question and um, letting <laughs> us hear a bit more of what you're thinking about. So it was a real pleasure having you here. I very much enjoyed the talk. Thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it very much too. Yeah, well, my pleasure. Also. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Pleasure talking to both of you. Yeah. So, and thank you, of course, also to our guests who um, listened to this Untitled Investment Talk, just like the others. I hope you found something that really helped you understand the crypto ecosystem a little bit better. And yeah, do engage with us. Um, hit us up on LinkedIn. Uh, leave us some comments, what you would like to hear next, what you found good, what you found bad. Just let us know. And yeah, thank you for being with us and stay tuned for the next Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise.